VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Well, it goes without saying. Of course, we have volatility, but I wouldn't say there's anything too unusual at the present time. And anyway, volatility characterizes most investment environments for those of us who've been uh, in this financial market for some time. Uncertainty, well, there's that old silly saying, the only certainty is uncertainty. So absolutely, always. Complexity, definitely. We have a highly complex uh, global investing environment. I will argue today that I would suggest that our geopolitical environment has a degree of complexity which is particularly challenging. But really what I'm going to try and argue today is that when it comes to this notion of ambiguity, my proposition today is uh, no, I'm afraid. I, I really actually wish I didn't have this view. I, I, I'm, I want to be frank with you. There's absolutely no ambiguity in my view in terms of the data and in terms of particularly the geopolitical uh, environment. So I would put to you today, if there's anyone in this room that thinks this chart has any element of ambiguity, I would ask you to think very carefully. What is, what is it? Money supply, the United States, the monetary aggregate M2, I cannot tell you the pleasure it gives me talking about money supply at investment conferences because fund managers hate talking about money supply. In fact, central banks hate talking about money supply. In fact, many economists think it's totally irrelevant. Money doesn't matter. Is there an irony that the people that manage money and the entities that create money think that money isn't important. I would suggest to you the only constituency that got remotely close to predicting the inflation that we've witnessed in the last three years were, of course, the monetarists. Can you remember someone once saying, what happens when too much money chases too few goods? Do you remember that? Guess what happens? Too much money chasing too few goods, we get inflation. I would put to you today that following February and March of 2020, where, as you can see in this chart, we had an explosion in money supply, the likes of which we've never seen before, combined with record fiscal stimulus. In fact, I shared these statistics with you, I think, last year, when we spoke about moving from the abnormal to the normal. When you combine the fastest increase in money supply with the most aggressive increase in fiscal spending in history, and then you combine that with unprecedented, we have to be careful using words like that, unprecedented dislocation and disruption in supply chains, too much money chasing too few goods, you get what? Inflation, who could have seen that coming? Who could have seen it coming? The PhDs in economics, the central bankers, just didn't see it coming. 
And yet there it was, an explosion in money supply. Now let's look carefully at the chart. What has it done recently? We have never seen before, since records began with regard to US money supply, a contraction in the year-on-year -year rate of growth in M2. What does that mean? It means we are going to see the mother of all economic contractions and a noticeable decline in inflation. Because guess what? Money actually matters. And I am going to suggest today that in the next three, six, nine months, 12 months, or maybe I'm just being overly optimistic and hopeful, that when you go to investment conferences for the remainder of this year and into next year, you might actually see a chief economist from a world-leading financial institution. Heaven forbid you might hear a central banker actually talking about money supply, because it matters. And the acceleration in money supply mattered. It created inflation. And the deceleration in money supply is going to create what? an economic contraction and deflation. It's only a matter of time. What is also unambiguously different about today is this beautiful, colorful chart. And it shows you short-term policy rates from all the major central banks in the world. Canada at the top, followed by the US Fed, UK base rates, Bank of England, of course, our very own RBA, and New Zealand, the Kiwi in the coal mine. Do you remember the Kiwis? So cheekily raised rates before the rest of them did? Guess what? The South Koreans beat the Kiwis to it. So let's give them a little bit of credit for actually reading their monetary economics textbooks. And then, of course, the, the ECB. I would argue that it's relatively unambiguous that we have seen a seismic, dramatic increase in short-term interest rates, the likes of which we haven't seen before, not in terms of just the magnitude, but the degree of synchronization. Guess what happens next? There are no surprises. I love talking about yield curves. I'm an old-fashioned bond guy. Started in the markets in 1984, started in the global fixed income uh, markets in London, and I can't help myself. I get unbelievably excited when I look at yield curves. I'm really good fun at parties, I promise you. I love talking about yield curves because I would argue that virtually the majority of people in this room are equity people, right? Equities are more fun. Bonds are boring. I know, I've suffered that for 38 years. Yield curves are so, so exciting because guess what? Every time we get an inversion in the US yield curve, every equity fund manager says, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever. They even sometimes say it's different this time. Well, guess what? The yield curve is heavily inverted, and it tells me a couple of things. We're going to get a recession. That, to me, is a given. But it actually tells me this is going to be a pretty brutal one because of the quantum or degree of inversion. And because I love yield curves so much, and I know from looking at your faces that you are just fascinated by this part of my presentation, I just can't help myself. I have to show you another one. 
Let's do twos, tens. The prior chart was three-month bills versus 10 years. Let's do the twos, tens. Come on. Where's the ambiguity in that chart? Do you know how many times... In fact, this chart goes back to when I started in the markets. Every single time the curve became inverted, every equity manager said, ah, it doesn't matter. It does matter. And 2023, we're going to see how much it matters. And into next year as well. Oh, this chart's a bit messy. But what have I got here? The conference board, the US conference board, the leading economic index, most of you will be familiar with that. And what we've done here is we've taken a six-month rate of change in the LEI. The conference board is a nonpartisan, nonprofit kind of entity. There's no political partisanship. And it publishes this measure, which I think is an aggregation of 10 measures, which provide us with clues, insights, heads-up kind of thing about what the future looks like in the United States. All I've done here is shown you with the red bars where the United States has been in a recession. And it's evident from the chart that whenever the six-month rate of change in the conference board, LEI, Leading Economic Index, goes below, the magic number's about minus 4%. Whenever it goes beneath that, each and every time we've had a recession in the United States. Well, you can see what the number is on the screen. Can you all see that number? It's minus 7.3. Is it going to be different this time? Just, just stop for a minute. I just showed you money supplies collapsed. We've never seen a contraction in year-on-year -year rate of change. And by the way, it's not just the US. We're seeing monetary contraction on a three- and six-month rate of change basis in the UK and also right across Europe. I then showed you the synchronized nature of global interest rates. I then showed you yield curves. I now show you the six-month LEI. If we don't get a recession in 23 or 24, you know what? I, I don't know what's gone wrong. My degree of confidence now is so high, I'm trembling. And I hate having high degrees of conviction about anything. I always try and find someone who's going to disagree with me. But I cannot see any other scenario at the present time. Yes, of course, we've all been mesmerized by this rise in consumer price inflation. I mean, what was it, 18 months ago? All the chief economists had CPI at around 2%, round about now. By the way, inflation is rolling over. What you are probably going to be more concerned about in the next 12 to 18 months is how much it falls. Because if those monetary aggregates and every other indicator I've shown you provide us with a kind of roadmap, it tells you the real anxiety here in the next 12 to 18 months is not going to be inflation. Although there's going to be a lot of sticky parts, but I am not going to bore you with the inflationary story. The most complex variable any of us in the financial markets ever try to assess and predict is inflation. My inflationary jigsaw puzzle is unbelievably complex. There are so many variables. Statistically speaking, we have a massive base effect because, of course, we're dropping off 
high month-on-month readings from a year ago, and up 0.9 month-on-month, and up 1.2, so on and so forth. So we're going to get a statistically and arithmetically engineered deceleration in the rate of increase in inflation. That's a great chat-up line. I must remember that. So there's a statistical and arithmetic inevitability about the outlook for inflation in the United States. But you know, of course, there are some sticky parts. But the bottom line is, when everyone should have been talking about inflation in 2020 and 2021 when they weren't, the irony is this. Now everyone's talking about inflation, it's going to go away. And the conversation is going to migrate from inflation to recession. And I have such a high degree of certainty about that, I'm really nervous. So we can have a wonderfully, wonderfully open and candid conversation about is it hard, is it soft, is it a hard landing, is it a soft landing, oh, guess what? The wizards on Wall Street have just come out with another one. They can't help themselves. Guess what? There's no landing. There's no hard landing, there's no soft landing, there's no landing. I don't know. They really impress me with the ingenuity, the wizards of Wall Street. It's amazing what they come up with. I couldn't resist it, because I know not a single person in this room will ever remember what I said a couple of years ago about OER. Anyone? Please, someone say, oh, thank you, James. Thank you, sir. Pain report subscriber, you see. Mm-hmm. Owner's equivalent rent. I cannot tell you the pleasure I had two years ago, boring countless audiences, boring them senseless with this passion I had for this three-letter word or term, owner's equivalent rent. Well, guess what happened? Yep, shelter inflation, rent inflation in the United States, owner's equivalent rent, has been the key driver of inflation in the United States. It's about 38% of CPI. By the way, that number's slightly out of date because I've just been traveling all over the place and just got in from the UK yesterday, and that number's even higher. And that's going to roll over, by the way, because in the real world, rents are declining. So by the way, this kind of acceleration in shelter inflation, and I've got owner's equivalent rent before you, is going to roll over as well. So that has been a tailwind for inflation. That's going to be a headwind. So that's going to be really interesting to watch the calculus around the key components of, of inflation. And having been rampant in my view that OER would spike, it's now going to roll over. So that's kind of good news. And then let's just quickly run through some of our housing statistics in the United States. I keep being told that this is nothing like 2007. This is nothing like 2007. No, it's not. It's 2023. And the banking system is different, right? The banking system in the United States today is robust. In 2007 and 8, it was a busted flush. The capital ratios of the US banks today, the commercial banks, are the best we've seen. Absolutely. Totally agree. And what happened in the GFC as we came into 08? We all know what happened, right? 11% of all outstanding mortgages in the United States were subprime. 
someone in this room even remembers me holding an advertisement from a newspaper in the United States from 2006, which said, no income, no job, bankruptcy, no problem, mortgages available 24 hours over the phone. That's what they call the ninja phenomenon, right? No income, no job or asset mortgages. We don't have that in the United States anymore, right? But that 11% of outstanding mortgages in the United States basically tripped up the global financial system. And without government intervention in the United States and right across Europe, you know what, quite frankly, I don't think we'd even be here today in this room talking about financial markets. I mean, we had to see a massive intervention in 2007 and 8. So, of course, the housing market at that time, the writing was on the wall for some time, right? In 2005 and 6, we saw the house prices rolling over. We saw a whole lot of stuff happening. We saw you know, subprime mortgages. We saw all the foreclosures building and building and building. And we kind of came into 2008. The writing was on the wall. And uh, in February, January, February of 2008, the consensus on Wall Street was the storm was behind us. We survived 2007. I, I remember it well. And at investment conferences in 2008, virtually every chief economist and every major fund manager said, phew, wow, 2007 was tough. But guess what? Brighter times ahead. The consensus of the top 15 Wall Street equity strategists was that the S&P 500 in 2008 would go up between 15 to 20%. At the beginning of 2008, the EPS, earnings per share estimate, from the Wall Street consensus, we're going to see about a 10% rise in EPS in the United States. You can check those numbers if you want. And what happened next? And people said at the end of 2008, who could have seen that coming? Who could have seen that coming? Central banks said it, the fund managers, the chief economists. Anyway, so what about this year? We survived 2022. Phew, got through that. Clear skies ahead. Maybe even a silver lining. Housing market, we don't have the same issues, right, in the United States. The only problem is the data is telling me that things are pretty fragile in housing in the United States. I also know, if you look at average house price to income ratios, so on and so forth, they're off the scale across the United States. Oh, yep, there's a shortage of housing, all those things. But key indicators that I've always slavishly followed, such as that before you hear, the NAHB, home builder sentiment, has fallen off a cliff. I'm a data junkie. I can't ignore that kind of number. Existing home sales. I mean, gee whiz, do any of you get excited by that data? We actually saw some more overnight. Those numbers are slightly out of date. It's even weaker than the numbers before you. Existing home sales in the United States. I don't know what to say about this number. I'm trying to do as much as I can on housing. But whenever I talk to anyone about housing in the United States, they keep telling me there's not a problem. That worries me, particularly a chief economist telling me there's no problem. But I have found, and I speak to a lot of people in the United States, in the commercial real estate sector, there is some real pain. Watch that space. And that's going to be in the headlines in the next three to six months. 
Okay, it's time for a deep breath. I would really like to have spoken to you today about what's on the screen. You know, my passion, having lived in the Middle East for nine years and I was raised in Africa, I've always had a fascination with the world. I, I just can't help myself. The Middle East has always been one of my real obsessions and passions. But no one in Australia cares one African dung beetle about the Persian Gulf. And I, I kind of got used to that. They really don't care. But I think it's time that we in Australia care about what's on our screen. And I think we do. And I think it's now part of the general narrative and conversation and discourse. So just hold your breath for a minute as we look at that chart. We all know what it symbolizes and what it represents. I think it's incredibly powerful and vivid. And I literally could stop right here. And why confuse the situation with my interpretation? To me, it's self-evident. I've studied China now for over 30 years. I've always had a fascination with China. I've stood at this forum, at this forum in 2003, and spoke about the amazing rise of China, and that the most significant and defining economic phenomenon of our lifetime was the rise of the Asian middle classes, and that the rise of China would shape and define the economic landscape and topography for decades to come. I spoke with great optimism about the democratization and liberalization of the world's most populous nation. And for a long time, I was right. But then I was wrong, because we saw the rise of Xi Jinping. Because in China today, my dreams of democracy have vanished. Because today, we are witnesses to a new axis of autocracy. And this new axis of autocracy will tragically shake and shape and define the geopolitical landscape for years and hopefully not decades. Because we today have a new axis of autocracy with Russia and China at its core. We today have a friendship between China and Russia that has no limits for the February 2022. After a six-hour meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, they made a statement. You need to read it. I, in fact, shared it with you at this forum last February. And then, of course, on the 24th of February, Russia formally invaded Ukraine. And when we spoke at this venue almost exactly a year ago, there were still people suggesting that the Russians hadn't invaded. That's why I was so explicit when I said Russian troops have crossed the border, that is an invasion. And we, here we are a year later. And what have we learned in the last year? It is that this axis of autocracy has two other willing members, Iran and North Korea. I've lived in six countries, four of which could be described as autocratic and certainly not democratic. I can assure you, I can assure you, once you lose the privilege and luxury of a democracy, once you lose it, 
that's when you understand what it actually represents. And my fear is that in the great majority of the liberal democratic world, there are many of us who have no concept, no sense of what being deprived of the right of freedom of speech actually means. And having had so many of my friends imprisoned, detained, and tortured because they spoke their minds, I know there is no compromise. We today, we, the liberal democratic world, and it's not just the West, the liberal democratic world, face its greatest test, certainly since the post-war period. We today face an adversary the likes of which we have never seen before. And this year and next, we will be tested. We've witnessed a tectonic shift in the geopolitical landscape. And one of the great privileges of being in the industry that I've loved for 38 years is the opportunity to travel. I've traveled to over 60 countries. And I can promise you, I can promise you that freedom of speech and all the values and the liberal democratic system that we have today, that's where I want my grandchildren to live. There is no ambiguity about autocracy. There is no ambiguity that today, democracy is in a brutal contest with autocracy. It is my unambiguous opinion that we have a highly complex global economic system and geopolitical environment with easily identifiable stress points. I don't think there is ambiguity about the world we live in today. I wish there was. I wish so much that what I said in 2003 about China had come to fruition. It did not. The liberalization of the Chinese economy did not lead to any form of democratization, quite the reverse. Xi Jinping totally and utterly vanquished any semblance of a pluralistic and open society. There is no ambiguity about autocracy. There is no ambiguity about the data that I look at in terms of the economic domain. There is no ambiguity about the decline in money supply. There is no ambiguity about the massive increase in interest rates. I didn't make that up. It's happened. And the degree of synchronization and the quantum of the increase has happened at a time of what? A gigantic increase in debt. Surely you know what happens next. Surely you know what happens when you have a dramatic rise in interest rates and a simultaneous dramatic rise in debt. Please tell me you know what happens next. And when the next wizard on Wall Street 
sings their fairy tale about soft landings and even now no landing, can you please ask them what their opinion on monetary data is? One of the great poster childs of abnormality, and, I, and by the way, I lost pain report subscribers a few years ago when I said I was shorting Tesla. Oh boy, it was hard. But Tesla, is Tesla a car company? It's just a question. But this, of course, has been the poster child of, am, of abnormality, our friends at Tesla. So you want a silver lining. We're on the way to normal, from abnormal. I don't know how long it's going to take. It will take some time. But a friendly reminder that as of this morning, you could get 5% on a six-month US Treasury bill. When was the last time? you could get 5% for doing nothing. And knowing, notwithstanding the little thing about the debt limit in the United States, you'll get your money back. That's pretty amazing. Don't underestimate the contest between equity markets and 5% on a risk-free asset. It'll take time. It'll take time. I urge you to be patient. I think it's time to take shelter. I think it's also time to have the vision and the agility to exploit the gaps and spot silver linings in the VUCA clouds. What, what would <laughs> negate the, the scenario you're painting, do you think? Forget your silver lining for half a moment. Yeah. What would negate the proposition that you're putting, JP? I'm, I, there's nothing that will negate it, because there's an inevitability, I believe. So you're right, is what you're saying? No, no, I'm not saying, I want to be wrong. I promise you I want to be wrong. But from the analysis that I do, in terms of the increase in interest rates, combined with the very high levels of debt, we've basically got a stagflationary debt crisis. And we're just in a slow motion kind of process. Unfortunately, we're going to have to go through this period of adjustment and then, uh, you know, we can all be happy and have lots to drink in about a year and a half's time. Do you think this has got a long way to run? I think we're halfway through. I think we're halfway through. Um, I, or, or everyone remembers 2000, 2002. Everyone obviously remembers 2007 to 2009. I hope some of you remember Japan, end of 89, well, right through the 90s. There is no way, in my view, that we can have a kind of garden variety, you know, semi-soft landing, uh, and the adjustment uh, is all going to be over in a year, in one year. It's going to take more than 2022. So we're going to have to work through it in 2023. So if you read my report, you'll know what my targets are in terms of stocks, et cetera, et cetera. The bottom line is I think we're halfway through in terms of time and, believe it or not, in terms of price. Somebody says the yield curve has been inverted during the gold standard and it wasn't a recession then. There's, there are so many aspects to that question. So the yield curve was inverted during the 70s with the, when we left the gold standard. So early 70s, we had stagflation. The problem with yield curves in the 70s, the yield curve wasn't as it is then. So we had a different kind of treasury market in the 70s. So I'm not going to say I'm going to ignore that piece of evidence. But in the 70s, we did see an inversion in the yield curve. So I'm, I'm going to actually have to challenge uh, the basis of that question. Uh, 
So, but the bottom line is, whenever we've seen an inverted yield curve, we've had a recession. It's just a matter of time. And I think that's what we're, we're going through right now. So there's a generation of voters yes. who think asset ownership is the way to wealth. Right. Don't you reckon policymakers will somehow figure a way of keeping those voters yeah. happy? Don't, aren't they going to keep screwing up the system yeah. to keep being voted for? The poster child for that is Australia. Um, so Australian authorities, government policymakers, you know, have the one thing that keeps them up at night is the fear of a, a housing decline. So I'm, I'm very public with my view on what's going to happen with Australian house prices. Um, and we're in that adjustment, and I think probably halfway through that at the, at the present time. I think you're right, Graham. Um, but I, unfortunately, I think this time, I don't think they can fiddle it, the inevitability of the price erosion that we're going to see here. Um, all the chatter about a mortgage cliff, I mean, it's real. It's real. So um, we know that the RBA lent $188 billion to the banks here um, at virtually zero interest rates. And we know what happened with that money. And we heard, we know the RBA pledged to keep rates, you know, at zero effectively to 2024 at the earliest. All of those things led to, you know, an accentuation of our housing bubble. Unfortunately, we're now going to see the deflation of that housing bubble. Um, the policymakers are going to be scrambling to try and do what they usually do in, and, and artificially maintain uh, the housing market. But I, I think the forces are too great this time. So this time really is different? Correct. And it's another regime compared to where we were? It's another regime compared to the Alice in Wonderland world that we've lived in post-2008. So we are on the road to something resembling normality. Tragically, there's a generation of money managers that have only lived in the world of Alice in Wonderland. 